I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome along. This week, our guest on Writer's Routine is Eleni Kiriakou. Her debut novel is She Came to Stay. Uh, we talk about why she overwrites and whether she wants to change that. Also, why she carries around cue cards full of plot points on them. And we talk about what she wants to do when she's actually telling her stories. At the end of every chapter, my aim, at the end of every, which is a scene really for me, I wanted the reader to feel that the, the story had moved on, either by plot or by character development. Either a character realises something about themselves or someone else, or the story has moved on. Now, when you're writing a feature for a magazine or a newspaper, every paragraph has to earn its keep. You can't you can't just write stuff and think, oh, let's just pad that out. And I just think the books should be like that. And films. I'm always going to see films and thinking, I really like that, but that was about 20 minutes too long. Stick around. More on the way with Eleni this week in Writer's Routine. Yes. Welcome along. My name's Dan. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of the planet's most successful authors. Uh, this week, we've got Eleni Kiriakou on the show. Uh, her novel is She Came to Stay. It's all about Dino, who travels from Cyprus to London for a better life and ends up being taken around the streets by Beba, who has a secret, uh, and it ends up being a murder mystery. It's got an edge. It's set in the 1950s in, in grimy Soho. There's actually quite a lot of, of similarities in tone between this and uh, This Lovely City by Louise Hare, who we spoke to last week on the show. That Also, Eleni has written and edited national magazines and newspapers, uh, so we talk about that and, and how that influenced the way that she she told her stories and how she breaks up her week of work. Uh, we also chat about where she escapes to when she writes, how she does her research, how she plans, how she plots, and why those little cue cards are vital for her to do both of those. We find out why she plans her day the day before and how much she thinks through a week and a year of storytelling. Uh, and we get into it, as always, with what Eleni sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I write in a few places, so I write at home occasionally, I write in cafes in my local area, and I write in the British Library as well, in the reading rooms. So it kind of depends. I was thinking today, do I have a routine? And I don't really. It just depends on my mood and 
which part of the book I'm writing. So if it's a part that is particularly tricky and it means looking at the whole manuscript and really sort of digging down into it, I would probably do that at home because I don't want to carry it around. And so in that case, I'll probably be in my dining room where I've got an amazing Art Deco dining table, which is beautiful. And I sit there and I close the door and I just get on with it. The problem with writing at home is I find that there are really a lot of distractions. So I'll be putting the washing on and I'll be making toast and I'll be thinking, oh, maybe that friend's around. I can go out for a coffee. So um, I have a couple of friends who are writers. And so occasionally we'll have a writing day in a local cafe and that works well. So we arrange to meet at a particular time. So we'll meet at a particular time, we'll have a quick catch up with a coffee and then we'll sit on adjacent tables and write and we'll say, okay, two hours and we'll sit there and write and then we'll break for lunch or whatever. And that kind of works depending on how disciplined we are. If we're both a bit frantic, it really works. We say, no, we're really going to work now. When you're with your your friends, with with your writing group, I know that some writers can be amazingly precious and careful over what they're writing they don't want anyone else to know what's in the plot because why would they want to tell that story twice when you're with your your friends are you are you open to chatting it through with them asking them questions uh, wriggling through a problem I think this book she came to stay would not have happened had it not been for my writing group I think that getting advice from other people who are equally serious about writing is invaluable Um, So I was part of a writing group in my local area where there were quite a lot of people, about a dozen of us, and I did that for a couple of years, and that was great. And then three of us ended up forming our own group. And we will, you know, I will message someone and say, "Um, really not sure about this character, or I was thinking about this for the ending, what do you think? And then I get feedback, and we're not talking about a big group, we're talking about two two other people and myself. And... um, we meet every now and again, we meet about every six weeks or we do it virtually. Now one of us has moved out of London and it just works for us because we know each other's books inside out. And so it, it really works in that we talk about these people as if they're real. And for example, my book is set during the Great Smog in 1952. And occasionally when it's really foggy, my friend Kate would just text me and go, fog. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, fog. And I tell you, we've talked so much about fog, you would not believe it, or about the 50s. But yeah, it, I find it really useful because you're not, they, they know the story, but you're using them for very specific things. So we give each other passages every six weeks or so to, to read and we give each other feedback. And we know it all comes from a place of wanting to help each other. And we're writing slightly different things, so it's not it's not competitive. We're really good friends first. It's great. It really works. If you make sure that you're in your own home when you've got a particularly chunky bit to write, as yeah. you said, because you need your research around you. Yes. When what what might you go to the British Library to write? What might you escape to a cafe to write? Have you got these places which yes. are very um, important for you at certain places in your story? I think sometimes a British library is a great place to go to if you know exactly what you want to tackle that day. So, for example, if there was a particular scene or there was a bit of research I needed to do, for example, there's a part in my book where someone contemplates getting a boat to New York from Liverpool. So I thought, oh, did those boats run? How often did they run? What did they look like? How much would it cost? I knew I'd find those answers in British Library and I, I'm very unmethodical about the way I do my research. I literally just put random words in the search and eventually it all comes up. <laughs> and the great thing about British Library is you can, you can, it's completely free to join. You can just search anything and within 
about an hour it will arrive in the room wherever you are the most of the research is easily available and you're looking at a ticket for you know the liner or you're looking at what the inside of the cabin looked like you might not end up using a lot of that research but it's quite good if you're exploring if you're researching um i did a lot of research for she came to stay in it and i got all kinds of amazing stuff from british library including um, Cypriots talking about what it was like to come here and stuff I would never have had access to. Um, if it's a local cafe, I think that's when I, it might be I'm doing a chunk of editing and I feel a bit more confident about being in a space where it's a little bit noisier. I, re I realise that I really love working in an environment where there are other people, there's a little bit of noise sometimes, or where other people are working as well. There's something, it's almost like an accountability. It's like I'm being watched, like being at school. It's like I better get my head down and work. At home, I just don't seem to have the discipline that I have when I'm out. It, I, I don't really know why that is. Now, you say you do a lot of research. Yeah. You don't like to take it with you. What does it exist as at your home? Is it simply a a stack of paper have you got a whiteboard with your plotting thoroughly put on it have you got post-it notes everywhere i like having things printed out so i've got a huge amount of paper i have a folder when i first started this book i wanted to know what the clothes looked like what it all sounded like i wasn't around in the 50s i have memories from my parents who told me what it was like when they came from cyprus to london um, they're not around anymore but i still have photos i interviewed my auntie you know we have i have those memories but um what i did i looked at encyclopedia of fashion i photocopied pages of 1952 and 53 i wanted to see what would my main characters dina and bebe be wearing what were the underclothes like what kind of you know did they wear girdles what kind of things did they wear i wanted to get that right so i have folders where i have background information character information um, amazing places in London that I found out about that like a particular church that was bombed and stayed in ruins for many years and there's a scene set there occasionally I might find out about um, for example public baths there were these amazing public baths and I decided well the men and women were separated and they had fantastic green tiles inside and the women who work there dressed a certain way and I thought I want to set a scene there so sometimes I do it that way around sort of trying to shoehorn in a particular setting it doesn't always work but it's about building up the atmosphere but going back to your question yes I have post-it notes and um, I used to work on magazines and there's something on a magazine called a flat plan where you map out the whole magazine so you have each page each double page spread you can see it visually on a big grid mm. i did something very similar with index cards for my book so every scene i would have on an index card so i would say for example dina arrives from cyprus and that would be the first index card the second might be we meet her brother you know and on those cards i would write various things um it's a bit like a cork board if you ever use scrivener people um who use that will know what I mean. But basically what I did was I then lay it all out, lay it all out on a kitchen table. And occasionally I've even color coded it, depending on whose point of view it is. And the reason I like this is because it's seeing the book in a visual way. So I can look at it and think, okay, so there was action here. So the next scene has to have um, 
there has to be a bit of contemplation. There has to be a bit of reflection. You can't just have action, action, action throughout the kind of book that I'm writing. So I would sort of map it all out and lay it on the table and think, what would happen if I moved that bit up there? What if she found this out here? And so I just, it's like a jigsaw, just moving it around constantly. And I see it a bit like, almost like a almost like mountains where you have a peak of action mm. and then it goes down and then a peak and you sort of know where you're going as well. I always sort of had an idea of what would happen at the end, but not really how. I think I did the index cards after I wrote the first draft. So I had a list of scenes. Um, I had a list of events that were going to happen. Mm. I started writing around that and then I started filling in the gaps. And then I realised I had a list of scenes and I thought maybe I have a book here. So then I filled in index cards and laid them out. Um, and it would be, if you imagine a round table that fits four people comfortably, it covered it. So I would say there were about 50 cards on it. Um, the book is quite, it's a reasonably long book. I think there might be about 60 or chapters in it because my chapters are quite short. They're just scenes. So that's how I did it. I didn't plan it all out on index cards first. I wrote them as a way of figuring out how to structure the book, if that makes sense. After the fact, yeah, after the first draft. I, it, it was just a way of me capturing the book somehow without having to carry around a huge manuscript. So I would even go to a cafe with index cards and shuffle through them and think, well, that bit doesn't work because, you know, this is there's too much description in this section. What can I do to what can I do here to pique readers' interest and just try and think of something else, another secret to be revealed or something to make it a bit more interesting? I like I like the way that you're doing that. It, it sounds, not in a bad way, but the, the mechanical thought process behind that of thinking, I need readers to want to read on what can I do to keep their attention there. How yeah. I know that you were a journalist uh, working, writing freelance for some time. H how much of these tricks keeping a reader's attention, telling a story in short scenes, did you learn from your time with, with The Guardian, writing for The Observer and stuff? I think I I must have taken quite a lot from that, even though I wasn't necessarily conscious of it. I think if you've been a journalist for a long time, you, you might think, oh, I'm going to be able to write a book quite easily. And people sort of expect you to be able to write a book quite easily because writing and editing is what you do. Actually, writing a book is really different. You have you have disciplines that you can bring, for example, deadlines, you have grammar, you know, you, you all know the rules of grammar, you know what the rules are so you can break them, that kind of thing. But it's not necessarily, um, but it's, it's not necessarily true that one translates into the other and it's that easy. Um, but I think that there are things that you can bring across that are helpful. What are they? Okay. Um, I think as far as making a reader carry on reading, at the end of every chapter, my aim, at the end of every, which is a scene really for me, I wanted the reader to feel that the, the story had moved on, either by plot or by character development. Either a character realises something about themselves or someone else, or the story has moved on. Now, when you're writing 
a feature for a magazine or a newspaper, every paragraph has to earn its keep. You can't you can't just write stuff and think, oh, let's just pad that out. And I just think the books should be like that. And films. I'm always going to see films and thinking, I really like that, but that was about 20 minutes too long. Mm. And um, I feel that everything should really earn its keep. And so it doesn't mean the book has to be really short, but it all has to feed into whatever the message is that you're trying to give. Um, you can't really afford to go off on a tangent and start talking about something else because then you've lost the reader. So at the end of every chapter, I was trying to either have, they're, they're kind of my versions of a cliffhanger, um, but uh, perhaps not as obvious a cliffhanger as you might find in a psychological thriller or a crime book. So something that will make the reader think, oh, you know, oh, I didn't expect that. Or what did she mean by that? Or, you know, something that makes you want to think, I've got to carry on reading. And that's one of the things that people have said who've read the book is that they they do feel that they, it's a fast read. It's, a, it's something that, you know, you want to carry on reading, hopefully, because the pace is there. I think pacing is crucial and that is something you can learn from having had a background in journalism. Do you find the length of your scenes are quite often mirrored by the length of articles that you would write? I don't know that they are, but they are quite... They're reasonably short. I have a few scenes that are longer, but my scenes might be 2,000 words. You know, that might be a chapter for me. It's not It's not often that I would write something much longer. And in fact, what I had to do, I wrote the book and then I did have to go back and look at it again and develop it more because I felt that perhaps the characters got to where they were too quickly. And I did have to go back and think, okay, we've got to show why her emotions are like this and, you know, pad it out a little bit by by making it go a bit deeper because one of the flip sides of being a journalist is that you want everything to be really fast and you want to just get to the point straight away. And when you're writing fiction, people want to get to the point, but they want to enjoy the journey. It's not about reading it and getting there really fast. It's about being in it with the character and wondering what's going to happen to her and and sort of living it living through it with her okay i would have figured out the day before what i want to do the next day i think that's crucial because if i'm going in there trying to think what shall i do today then i know that's that's an hour wasted already yeah. it's probably an hour wasted on twitter <laughs> um so i will know what i want to tackle that day that just gives me a sense of purpose I will, um, coffee has to be involved first thing in the morning. And then once I've had a coffee, I would sit down and I would probably look at what I'm doing that day and figure out how much I'm going to be able to achieve and really think about, have a, have a real goal as to what, where I'm getting to, where I need to be before I feel happy with um with that day's work so I wouldn't say I have a number of words as such but I might have a um a task to achieve so for example if there's an issue with um a character or if there's an issue with a plot point I know that by the end of the day I need to have sorted it so that's my idea of having achieved something by the end of the day I haven't answered your question have I about routine no but it's fine because that was going to be a later question okay, all right. so that's great so I know what you want to do before you do start writing every yeah. day that's a question that not many authors are good at unpacking actually but so that's what you, you the night before you have figured out what you want to do on that day yeah or the morning if I'm going to the library I might even do it on the way in on the tube or whatever 
how does the day look when when do you when do you start working every day how long do you tend to work i probably wouldn't get to the library till about 10 because in my head i think i don't want to hit the rush hour so i get there about 10 i might work until about one half 12 one and then my friend caroline who i tend to work with will pass each other a note one of us will just put on the note lunch (laughs) with a question mark or we just give each other a look and we know and then we leave um some papers on the desk even though you're not meant to take our laptop across the road go to a cafe have something to eat and then come back for a couple of hours and then I tend to stop at about maybe about half three four and go home and I don't always work when I get home I feel that I'd rather do a good day of a good intense day of short hours than try and drag it out I get to a point where I just I'm I'm tired in the evening. I don't think I'm going to do anything particularly worthwhile. But your brain is still working. You're still figuring things out sometimes. That concentrated time when you are at, say, the library or or, or the cafe, how often do you complete that task that you have set yourself the day before? Is it a case where you simply will not leave uh, until you've done it? Or, you know, if you find it's... this isn't going to happen, you will take yourself off. I guess it's a long way of asking, yeah. how do you know when your day is done? I tend to achieve what I set out to, but if I haven't, that's when I will carry on working when I get home. Or what I've done in the past is if something hasn't worked, for some reason, if I feel like I'm going around in circles, I put it to one side and I'll start working on something else that day while I still have time. So I feel that... I've still got something positive out of the day. And then I think this happens often with writers. You find that you put something to one side and then your brain somehow is working on it or you go to bed and you wake up and it's almost like this sort of writing magic that happens. You wake up, you think, oh, I could do that. What, what, often, hap- what often works for me as far as problem solving is I go away from the laptop. So I'll put the lap- I'll close the laptop. I'll just get a piece of paper and I'll start writing things down, a bit like a mind map. I suppose, and I'll start scribbling all over it. And so say if I want someone to do something in particular in the book, but I know that I'm trying to force it and it's not working in the plot. And I think, okay, what would the opposite of that be? What else could happen? What what is the maddest thing they would do? What definitely wouldn't they do? And I just write all these, I do, it's almost like a bit of a brainstorm. I write crazy things down and then out of that, you sometimes get something because you realise that actually giving the reader what they least expect sometimes feels exactly the right thing. And I think that happens with endings as well. The ending of this book is something that I changed kind of at the last minute (laughs) because I realised it didn't work and I thought actually, um, I mean, my editor was just sitting there going, you know what, I think it needs to be something else. And then I thought, oh, that's what it needs to be. And literally the day I was going to hand to it, I would have had a chance to rewrite if I absolutely wanted to, but it really was like the last time I saw the book, I wrote something else and I thought it it felt like the only ending possible. And I think it works really well. And a couple of people have commented that the ending, they particularly like the ending. And I think, yes, I did that. I'm so glad I, I changed that. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll have more from Eleni in just a sec. Remember last week on the show, I mentioned that if you've got a book coming out soon, if it's already come out in the last few days, maybe, uh, and the release of it has been well, slightly catastrophically ruined uh, by the lockdown that's happening all around the world. Um, well, I can try and do my best, I guess. I can try and help it not be too deflating uh, and I can give give a shout out for your book on this podcast. We reach quite a few people around the world. I would love to chat about your story. Um, tell me about yours. I will give you a shout out on the show. Now, Hannah Vincent is a novelist and playwright. She's just published her debut short story collection. It's called She Clown and Other Stories. Uh, she did a virtual book launch for it on Instagram and Facebook uh, a few days ago. You can still watch that. Uh, look her up. She is at Hannah Vincent 22. And I think she's actually filmed a, a short little clip all about her process the way that she tells her stories, all about working on short stories and all about her writing day. Uh, so do look that up. Uh, as I say, she's on at Hannah Vincent 22 on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The book is called She Clown and Other Stories. And I think it would be really nice if we showed her some love for her book launch. It was kind of taken over uh, by the current crisis. So check it out. Let's see what we can do at Hannah Vincent 22. And also, if you're in a supportive mood please do support this show. I know it's strange. I know we're in hard, unprecedented times, but if you can spare a dollar or so a month to, to help us uh, keep on powering through, I do have quite a lot of authors that I'm going to share with you over the next few weeks. Um, if, if, we, if you would like episodes as frequently as we can bring them out, please do support the show over on Patreon. Uh, you'll get little bits of merch to say thanks. Um, I know times are tough, so I'm not expecting much at all. Uh, just a dollar or so a month, if you can afford it, please do uh, support us any way that you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Eleni, uh, all about her debut novel, She Came to Stay. In this half, we talk about how much she plans and how much she flies by the seat of her pants. Uh, also, about how the how in this story, rather, uh, her main character completely switched halfway through. She completely changed her focus. We talk to Eleni about why. Uh, we also chat about how much she forces through the plot and how much she lets her characters really dictate things and get up to what they want. And we pick things up with just one last little tip about the day. What does she do to make the whole thing slightly easier for her? 
start as you mean to go on. If I start, if I have a bit of a false start, so for example, if I go to a cafe and I spend quite a lot of time looking at emails or looking at Facebook or Twitter or that, it I find it quite hard to get into it. If I'm if I go into the cafe with something I might have printed out on my on a piece of paper, um, it might be a, pr- a plot problem, and I've printed out a few thoughts on it and I just start straight with that, then I'm on a roll and I get going. I'm very much a, I think I'm sort of a morning person in that even though I'm not necessarily starting that early, however I start my day seems to, the rest of the day takes on that tone. So I find it quite hard to turn it around. I'm a bit all or nothing. Once it's all gone a bit pear-shaped, I'm like, oh, well, may as well just, you know, (laughs) stop for now or read a magazine or go to the library and get a book out or something you know I find it quite hard to turn that around so to combat that before it starts you have to be quite disciplined in the morning that's my thought is be quite disciplined in the morning and just stick to whatever your goal was that day and then you're sort of you're running already and then whatever happens later doesn't kind of doesn't matter you could be easy on yourself a bit later on if you've got it all done as a writing routine of a week would you be writing every day how would you i know working no. freelance and editing how would you package um, that together i i occasionally get shifts on magazines or weekend supplements where i might be asked to go in and do an editing shift or commissioning so it depends what i do is i sometimes do for example, a maternity cover for someone. So I might be in an office for a few months and then sort of not doing that much of my own writing and then take time to do my own writing. So I've tried to sort of create a life where I can have the time and space to do the fiction and occasionally, you know, go off and do do a contract somewhere else. So let's talk about the book then. Okay. This is over a, a considered time. Uh, it's She Came to Stay. Can you tell me about the very first moment that the idea for this story years ago now did come into your head? How did it present itself? What was that initial spark of a light bulb? There were two things. The first thing was my my mother came to London from Cyprus by herself uh, in the 1950s, as many people did. She was about 25, 26 years old. A lot of people emigrated here for a better life because they came from real poverty. And this was her chance to build a better life for herself. Um, and she came here and it felt to me when I heard about it afterwards that it was quite a leap of faith. She knew a couple of people here, but she didn't really have very much here. And she met my father here. They got married. They had a really nice life, everything. It was a very nice life for them. But what interested me was the idea of a young woman coming here and what if things hadn't gone right? What if things, what if she'd fallen in with the wrong people? Or what if she'd made friends with the wrong people? What if things hadn't quite turned out the right way? And so that was always in my head as a possibility for, I didn't realise it was really a story that I would write. I just was intrigued by the um, optimism and the sort of bravery mm. of all the people that did, do come here and that go to all kinds of places and start a new life. And the other thing was I just had a, an image of a woman and I don't know whether this was a photograph I saw because I did so much research and I looked at so many photographs but I had an image of a woman standing on a train platform dressed beautifully and um, smoking and just stubbing the cigarette out with her with her shoe 
and she was dressed in a sort of very 1950s way and I just it felt like an arrival it felt like the beginning of something and I just thought oh that sounds like the beginning of a book um as it turns out, it wasn't the beginning of it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I did actually write that as a scene, but then that got binned because that wasn't that wasn't who I ended up writing about. But it was just that um, that idea of um, starting afresh, and images seemed to have quite an impact on me. I did. Um, I went to a few galleries, saw some exhibitions, and there are some photos that really sort of stay in your stay in your head, and it really helps create a world when you are writing and I was trying to really create an atmosphere and a very much a sense of time and place of a time and place that I don't actually know because I didn't live through that even though Soho was part of my childhood Soho of London in the 1950s I I wasn't alive then so so you've got these these two ideas Mm. um, mixing around your brain then what happens what does it take for you to get that initial idea that you had about your mum coming over here and Mm. thinking this might make an actual story idea. How, how do you move that on to the, 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 the first embers of a plot? Okay, well, I was thinking about the characteristics that the main character, Dina, would have. So, to me, she was quite a um, quite brave, a little bit shy, not very worldly. Um, came here looking for not just a better life, but a bigger life, something a bit more exciting. Really wanted to make something of herself. Then I thought, who can I put her with that would sort of scupper her and I thought I know she could have a real no good brother someone who is a gambler a bit of a bit of a liar someone who tries but never really never really manages to come true to his word if he says he'll do something he doesn't really do it and then I thought well you know maybe she needs a friend and so you just kind of play around with characters so the characters came first and I created a character called Beba who was very glamorous and very knowing and very sophisticated, the opposite of Dina. And I thought, well, they could become great friends. And then you find out that, you know, Beba has a few secrets and what does that mean for Dina? And so that's what the plot revolves around. How much of a conscious thought is that when you've got Beba and and, and you think, right, these girls are going to have quite a great romping friendship here, but what can her secrets be? How much of a a forced thought is that for the character you mean or plot or well, f- uh, for the for the plot really i just at what point did it did it come to you did you have to sit there and uh, and think about this or or is it just organically developed as you write oh i wish it was organic <laughs> <laughs> i wish i could say yes yes i woke up and it was all there <laughs> um no i think i was just trying i was just trying to think about what the challenges would be at that time what what might her secrets be? What might um, what might Dina really want out of her life? It was really important that Dina had agency, that she made things happen, that it wasn't just a story happening to her because she is the main character. So I wanted to give her something for herself, something that she wanted to do. So she has a love of sewing. She gets a job in a review bar where she's repairing all the outfits for the outrageous acts on stage. And so the the book is set in um, Soho bars and clubs. And so I wanted that element of sort of glamour and grit. But as far as how planned was it, it, it is it's a matter of writing something and then rewriting it and seeing if it fits occasionally you might come up with an idea and 
you write it and you think, oh, I really love that. And I'm sure so many, I know that so many writers have said this to you because I've listened to the podcast, but you sometimes some of your favourite stuff is stuff that doesn't stay in the book. Or you might think, oh, I think it could be this. This could be what happened to her in the past. Or maybe I'll have a scene like this. And it ends up just not working because it doesn't fit. It, it might feel very clever or it might feel a bit showy, but actually if it doesn't work with the book, then it doesn't belong there. And you you get to a point when you work with an editor at publishers where that you realise it's not your book anymore in a good way. It belongs to other people as well. And they they are often the best charge of mm. what works and what doesn't because you just can't see it anymore because you've read it so many times. If I had to choose whether I'm someone who plans or not, I would say I do plan. But that plan doesn't always come off. So I, I thought the story was, you know going a particular way so I thought the main character was going to be Beba was the other person in the story and I thought she would be the main character and actually I realized after a few months that she wasn't going to be the main character for why is that what what made you think that what made you realize that because I wanted the reader to be with Dina throughout so it's through her eyes and I wanted the reader to be finding things out as if she were the main character. In the same way with most sort of mysteries or thrillers or whatever, you, we need to see it through someone's eyes. And Dina was the person whose eyes to see it through. She was the one finding things out. And Beba was the one who's a mystery. So I, want, I thought for the characters to work, for the story to work, we need to be Dina as a reader. We need to be the one that is sort of almost besotted with this amazing glamorous mischievous friend and then suddenly thinking hold on a minute but you know how can this be right and then all these discrepancies that start coming up about this woman you've already said that you realized the actual ending quite extremely late on in the process what about the rest of the story at what point are you finding out where Dina is heading where Beba's going to take her what her secrets are going to be what the mystery is going to be I would say it comes with all the rewriting. Um, I, The general plot, the sort of framework is probably fairly similar, the journey of what, what happens, but how it all happens, that's all the rewriting and rewriting. And, you know, I, can't, I don't know if you were to ask me how many drafts I did, I honestly don't know because I did this over a number of years because I, I put it down at one point to do other work, you know, other paid work and then came back to it. And so I don't really know how many drafts I've done, but I know that with each draft, I approached something else and I thought, okay, I've got to get more description in or I've got to sort out this plot problem or, you know, and every draft looks at something else. When our plot points, when are things becoming clear to you as you are writing Dina's journey? When, when, when when do you start to figure out the middle? When do you start to figure out beat after beat? I think I think it happens um, really gradually. For me, it didn't it didn't happen straight away because I was learning as I was going along. So I wrote one version of the book that I imagine I haven't looked at it for a very long time. But I imagine that first draft is really different to the way it is now. It's still story of a woman coming here and what happens to her and taking a risk and, you know, coming to London and thinking it's going to be the best thing that she's ever done. But actually, it could also be her undoing. It's still that story. But what happens to her and how is very different. And so 
with every draft that you write, those plot points layer on. It's like a layering. And so you go deeper and deeper till you've got a novel. So it starts off very basic. It's like, okay, this is a friendship. She's got this great friend and they're going to go out and have a, the best time. And she's got a no good brother and this is what's going to happen. And then you think, you realise that the story isn't, is just too thin. Then you go back and you add more and you add more. And it, it, it sort of happens because you're reading it as a reader after a while and you think, well that doesn't quite work and you just add more to it. So I don't think I had plot points as such. I had a few, I probably had a couple, but I think I added them as I went on over time through learning. Speaking about learning, yeah, it does. Speaking about learning there, if you don't mind me saying, the way that you're writing, the way with all these rewrites that you're doing and as, as you are developing, it seems slightly inefficient. Now, the, the the point of the podcast is all about efficiency of creativity, which I'm which I'm quite curious about. Do you think that as you move on, as as you write your your second Dina's second story, as you develop these characters, as you develop your own writing, do you think you'll you'll perhaps come up with a way to 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 cut down on the rewrites or and get it done first time, or are you happy with that and and you 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 want to develop the story that way? I think I need no no I need to write in a much more efficient way there was no there was you know nobody was nobody was waiting for this book to happen mm. when I wrote it I was writing it because I wanted to write it and because I had an idea and I was writing it as well as doing lots of other things so it was it was what started as let's just see how it goes ended up ended up being this this book and so I think now that I have an idea which is a completely different story with different characters, so it's not it's not doing a second book, it's just a completely different book. Um, I will do more work. I think one thing that I learned late on and I need to needed to address more was characters, how important it is to focus on the characters and the characters' motivations and what they need and what they're doing rather than just thinking about plot. And so if I can get the characters right at the beginning... I think I will already cut out a few drafts because quite a lot of my going back was just rethinking characters because I didn't know. You know, my writing group would go, oh, would she do that? And then I'd sit there and go, I'm not sure. And you need to know, you need to know. I've tried forcing the plot. I've tried, rather, I've tried forcing the character's hand. I've tried making people do things in my book. I wrote another book before this that is just in the top drawer. And um, I've tried making people do things that they wouldn't do. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And so you may as well just accept early on that if you, even if you have a plot in mind, if your characters wouldn't do it or it doesn't make sense for them to do it, then you've got to change your plot. And it, and this, you know, this book, I don't know how many thousands of words I wrote that had never seen the light of day, but all of it informs you as a writer. So you just have to, take a deep breath and accept that none of it is wasted because you I feel like I've learned a huge amount and I'm hoping that that will be reflected in the next one and you know in the way that I write and as well as you know in the book itself we've talked about plot we've talked about characters let's move on to setting to finish things off setting a story in Soho of the 50s during the smog you mentioned that to to a Brit anyway someone's that's been around London and it's very evocative you know the idea of Soho yeah. of swinging Soho I know it was a little bit earlier on um, talk to me about bringing that alive, uh, alive through the words well what's interesting it happened it happened just by chance because I was doing some research into the 50s 
And I found out about the smog and I didn't know about the smog. I know that everyone now knows about it, but I didn't know about it. And then I just thought this is a great setting. This real event would be a great setting because I found out that during this time, you know, that crime went up. Um, many people died. Government, I think, said it was 6,000. It was more like 12. Um what was once very familiar became really unfamiliar and dangerous. People couldn't find their way home. And I just thought, my God, this is a gift. <laughs> no one's written this. And of course they have. But, you know, it's writing about it is central to the book because Dina comes here as a new sort of, it's a new beginning for her and it's a happy beginning and she's going to, everything is going to go really well for her. And then suddenly things really change for her and suddenly the, the you know the fog falls and everything isn't what she thought it was and and she doesn't know who to trust and she doesn't know what's going on and it's about finding your way uh, you know literally and as as a person she's trying to find her way to sort of for to a better life really so as far as writing about the smog um there's only certain a way, a certain amount of ways you can actually say fog or smog or mist or you but, know, but that's also quite hard. <laughs> but also about hard. the um, also the emotion and the nostalgia of the time. People look yeah. especially at Soho through a very spe yes. through very specifically tinted glasses. Yeah. How was it describing that? Um, Bringing that to life. It was brilliant. I loved it because I love all that, and I in my head I live in the past anyway. So, you know, in my head it's nineteen fifty three right now. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it. What intrigued me about that time and place in particular was that we have a view of it being quite glamorous, and actually, it was glamorous, but it was actually really gritty. It was a lot of poverty still. It was, you know, quite a lot of London was still bombed. It hadn't been, it hadn't been, you know, repaired around around UK. It was even more so, um, and so, along with all the glamour and all the, um, what we now look back with really fondly and think, oh, those amazing times. Actually, there was quite a lot of crime. There was a lot of there was poverty. There were there were other things that was quite seedy. And so the whole book has got that quite sort of film noir feel to it, in that it is about the kind of small time gangsters. It is about the people who are on the edges, the people who don't quite fit, the people who are here um, to make a quick buck, and also the people who are here because they really really need to get a better life. Because the reality is in Cyprus the the grinding poverty was so awful that no woman would ever be able to get married if she came from a poor background she just didn't have the dowry she wouldn't be able to survive so you know the the that appealed to me the idea of the two things the sort of glitter and the grime of soho in the 50s i just loved all that and just inventing all that as well as looking at research i invented quite a lot of you know like the stage acts that i describe and whatever they're all invented and i just thought what would be the craziest thing you know and just put that up on stage so i loved doing that that was a huge part of it that's why i think you have to love whatever book you're writing because you're going to be with it for a while even if you write you know a, th a psychological thriller that you can turn around quite quickly you still have to read it so many times mm. and you live it for so long that you have to absolutely adore what you're writing. That's why it doesn't work when people, um, think it really doesn't work when people think, well, what does a market want? What does the, what, what should I write? What would sell? Because 
you know, so what? <laughs> you need to write something you would want to read and something that you can lose yourself in. And that's when I think hopefully you'd write a good book. And that is it with Eleni Kiriakou. You can pick up her book. It's called She Came to Stay. I've got details of it over at the website. It's writersroutine.com. While you're on there, click on the contact page. Uh, if you are an author and your book launch has been slightly dampened by the current crisis, let me know all about it. I will give it a plug, give it a shout out in the next few weeks of the show. Uh, you can also get all the different ways to listen to and subscribe to us over at writersroutine.com as well. You can also get in touch over on Twitter, give us a follow, it is at writerspod. Uh, if you've not yet, please do leave a review for the show over on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. And if you can, I know it's a, it's a weird, hard, strange time right now, but if you can, uh, please do pledge and support us however you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine next week all being well uh, we're back chatting to the thriller writer sam lloyd i will see you then next time on writers routine stay safe bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.